This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. One evening in March 1815, a riot broke out in Canterbury. According to the following day's edition of The Times, quote, a number of the lower orders paraded the effigy of a noble earl through the principal streets of the city, and in the evening consigned it to the flames amidst hootings, hisses and groans. The protesters then broke the windows of the local MPs before two of their ringleaders were arrested and thrown into jail. Similar events unfolded elsewhere in Britain. The rioters were protesting against the Corn Laws, legislation introduced to control the price of grain. Passed in 1815, the Corn Laws led to an ideological dispute between manufacturers and landowners, city dwellers and farmers. They were eventually repealed by Robert Peel's government in 1846 after three decades of disagreement. The episode led to a major alteration in government policy and, some argue, changed the face of British politics. With me to discuss the Corn Laws are Lawrence Goldman, Fellow in Modern History at St Peter's College, Oxford, Boyd Hilton, former Professor of Modern British History at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Trinity College, and Cheryl Schonhard-Bailey, Reader in Political Science at the London School of Economics. Lawrence Goldman, this episode began at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. Could you give us some idea of the state the country was in? Well, uh, in June, of course, of 1815, the Battle of Waterloo ends a generation of warfare against France, which began in 1793. But the state of the country throughout this decade uh, is is really poor poor shape. Uh, it's one of the most difficult decades in modern British history. Before Waterloo... Difficult, what, in difficult what economically, right. difficult in terms of the conditions of the poor and so forth. Before Waterloo, in the last years of the Napoleonic uh, conflict, uh, there is great privation, uh, shortages and considerable unrest. And then after the war is ended, uh, there is the problem of bringing a wartime economy back to peacetime stability. Demobilisation of sailors and soldiers and so forth, finding jobs, there's high unemployment. It's a difficult time, and it's at this point, of course, that Parliament passes these inflammatory laws, the Corn Laws, which only feed into another theme in these years, which is the rise of a democratic movement, uh, the rise of a movement concerned with manhood suffrage and parliamentary reform, uh, and, if you like, reforming uh, an old system and making it more representative. Yeah, a great deal's going on, but let's focus on the Corn Laws at the moment. What were they intended to do when they brought them in, and what did the Corn Laws themselves do? Right, they were passed, or at least the first of them was passed in 1815, it was the Importation Act, and it was designed to ensure a protected home market in grain for the landholders in Britain. Why did they want to do that? Well, it would keep prices high and keep prices stable. What landholders feared at the end of the Napoleonic Wars would be a sudden drop in price, uh, particularly uh, given the thought that cheap foreign corn from overseas would flood into British ports, reducing, as it were, their remuneration, their returns from rents from their tenants. So they want, as it were, to keep the price high. Now, in the minds of the rest of the community, of almost every class, this looks like exploitation of their position. They control Parliament, they can pass laws that, in a sense, line their own pockets. They being whom? 
they being the landholders, because Parliament is representative largely of the landholding interest. But uh, from the landholders' point of view, they have, they have a rationale, they have a, a defence. They've paid very high taxes, land taxes, during the Napoleonic Wars to fund uh, British victory. And in addition, they complain that they've taken marginal lands into cultivation, the sorts of lands you wouldn't normally cultivate in order to maintain food supply during the wars when getting food from abroad was very difficult. And they fear the loss of revenue and indeed finding themselves with uh, debts and so forth, having taken this marginal land into cultivation, which they can no longer meet. So they, in a sense, defend themselves on the basis of their patriotism during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Georges Hunt Bailey, what was the pressure to control the price of grain in the first place? Why was there that pressure? Well, the concept of protection for agriculture is, is not a novel one, but the novelty of this act in 1815 is that it was the first bit of late legislation that was deliberately and defiantly protectionist. There had been uh, corn laws in earlier centuries, but they were not meant to be protectionist. They were simply meant to uh, ensure that the price of grain did not rise above that that could be um, uh, paid for by consumers or that would not allow farmers to uh, to gain a living. But the Act in 1815 was clearly protectionist, as has been described in favor of the landowners. Um, and it was actually very blunt as, as an instrument. Um, so the bluntness is one aspect, but the, protect, the protectionist aspect is one that reflected a sentiment of a fear of scarcity, which is not necessarily um, dissimilar to what we see today, i.e. the reliance upon foreigners for foodstuffs is a very tricky um, thing for governments to embark upon. You use the word blunt. Could you develop that, please? Well, it was blunt insofar as it set the price at 80 shillings per quarter. And if the price were... Quarter of what? Uh, of corn. And mm. so if the, if the price were to go above 80 shillings, there would be free entry. Below, it would be prohibited. So there was no revenue gained from, from the Act, um, but it was meant simply as a, as a blunt instrument. Um, so in terms of the, you know, the fear of scarcity, I mean, as I mentioned, the, um, the, the rationale was meant to ensure that there was essentially a native industry that is for, uh, for agriculture. These laws, as, as I said at the beginning, uh, polarized opinion. There were riots in the streets and so on. Um, what were the main constituencies at that time, in around 1815, supporting the Corn Laws? If you can tell us a bit about the support they get and opposing the Corn Laws at the beginning. Well, I mean, as has been described, those in favour, those supporting it, of course, were the landowners who were fearing plummeting prices. Can we develop the landowners a bit? Are we talking about the old aristocracy or what are we talking about? Well, primarily those in, those in Parliament, but we were still in a period before um, rapid industrialization and which you find in particularly the, the 1820s, the 1830s, the, the growth of the textile manufacturers and the railway um, industry. 
So you know, you're still in an economy which has been industrializing, but at that point you don't have a mobilized constituency against, and I would I would call it simply the Corn Law, because what we're talking is at that point really the law of, of 1815. Um, and you don't have a mobilized constituency, as you as you read in your opening remarks. I mean, you had sort of disparate protests, but you had no collective effort uh, to mobilize against that law of 1815. Um, so in terms of a growing opposition, in part, it might be said to be a, more of an intellectual one by the political economists, so David Ricardo, um, McCulloch, uh, John Stuart Mill, which happens a little bit after the law is passed, and reflections are then uh, based on the implementation of that 1815 law and its impact. And, of course, the bluntness and its ineffectiveness is then uh, assessed by the political economists in terms of how do we go from here, how do we change it, which is then the debate, the subsequent debate, which leads us then to the plural for, for corn laws and the discussion in the 1820s and then later on in, in 42. But in a sense, from the very beginning, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, obviously, the, the, the stage you said, because the landowners, uh, who've been there, in most of them for several centuries, mm. uh, owning, ma- ma- really landowners, owning most of the country, full stop, put this through, that's their bill, that's that, and mm. protests begin immediately. Now, they might just be scourged in the streets of Canterbury and other cities, mm. but the stage is set for a battle from the beginning. Would you say that's true? It is, it, it is true, but if you look at what MPs and peers were saying at that point, they were very dismissive of the, the protests out of, you know, outside of Parliament. Um, and in fact, part of the ethos of MPs was to pursue what they perceived as um, the national interest and not necessarily to be swayed by the protests out of doors. So there was a bit of a deaf ear um, on the part of parliamentarians. But we're still talking about MPs in terms of a country which had not had the first reform form bill in Correct. 1832, which e- even that changed things small in a small way. So the idea was that if you owned a lot of land, you were in Parliament, you ruled the government roost. Would that? Would you go along with that, Boyd Hill? Yes, indeed. I mean, the. Um, as has been said, the great fear is one of scarcity. Thomas Robert Malthus has told us that there are too many people uh, that, for the uh, for agriculture. Uh, the French Revolution began oh. in hunger and so forth. But, as Lawrence said, the expansion of agriculture in wartime just fed a hope that perhaps Britain could be s- sort of self-sufficient or approaching self-sufficiency. Every um, two or three years out of six, you'd almost certainly need to import corn. But perhaps for the, for the other four, if you kept capital in agriculture, and that was what the Act was in, 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 meant to do, then maybe we could approach self-sufficiency, and that would be a, a relative safety. Now, by 1821, it's obvious that that uh, policy is in tatters. And, in what way? Well, I'll, sh- I'll explain. Uh, well, first of all, um, there's massive decultivation and a, a, a collapse of prices after 1815. That wasn't meant to happen, but it did happen. There's a glut of corn both in, in Europe and in Britain. In 1815, the, the ministers said very arrogantly, look, 
it's okay taking um, buying in foreign corn just say two years out of six because the farmers in Poland and Lithuania and Saxony they'll go on growing corn just for those markets every two years. It's a, a, an occasional market is better than no market at all. They'll go on growing it. We'll get it in when we need it. But it's perfectly obvious from travellers' reports by 1820 that in fact the farmers are giving up farming in Saxony, turning to cotton spinning, that sort of thing. Um, so the sudden panic that means that in the in the every fourth, fifth, year, sixth year when we have a really bad harvest, we simply won't be able to get it in from abroad. Furthermore, British farms are, be, are decultivating because the marginal land that was cultivated in wartime that Lawrence talked about, it just can't cope. It can't, uh, it can't continue with the collapse of price. The hope that Ireland might provide a granary for Britain, a very, very strong hope in 1815, that, that collapses with the uh, potato collapse and wheat collapse in Ireland in 1817. So, um, by 1821, despite great clamour from the agriculturists, the landlords, for uh, increased corn law, at this stage all the real pressure is coming from them to increase the law of 1815, but the government, despite the fact it's dependent on those landlords politically, issues a very clear report in 1821. The report is written by William Huskisson, who is the, uh, the government's economic guru and easily the most important uh, uh, minister for these matters, and he is backed up by the radical political economist Ricardo and they write a report and say look the future of the corn laws has to be downwards we can't do anything immediately because of agricultural distress but you must the landlords must get used to the fact that we need to um, we, we need to bring prices down to a level not too far above those of other countries and we must take corn regularly every year from foreign farmers we can't just wait for a scarcity and then expect to get it and the great thing about corn is it's not perishable. So the idea is that if you get a, a market conditions uh, by lowering prices, then the market will work out how much the, the country needs over a cycle of five or six years. You take roughly an equal amount every year and you store it in the warehouses, which you can do free. And there it will be um, to be taken out of the warehouses if come some November or December there's famine at home. What were the main? Who were the main supporters of what we can then call free trade in the twenties? Because this is intermingling with with the growth of radicalism, the, the what will become the Great Reform Bill in eighteen thirty-two. I know I'm rushing you a bit, but if you can bring those together, and I think they did go together, and tell us characterize the people who were leading that movement. Well, first of all, I would say that the main proponents of free trade are indeed the political economists, economists as Cheryl said, and certain government ministers. But, yes, there is a pressure building up, particularly in the second half of the 1820s, when you have sustained manufacturing distress, and particularly in those export industries like cotton, which are dependent on foreign trade, and who see the Corn Laws as a hamper, as a restraint on trade, and, and also raising prices and therefore making British goods less competitive. So can we just stop you for a moment, because this is the key, isn't it? Yeah. The manufacturers see the Corn Laws as an act of protectionism, which is stopping them trading... Yes. and stopping trade to and from this country in a very damaging way. So they spot that early on. Correct. And it's places particularly like Lancashire where this is, uh, these feelings are being uh, articulated. There are other industrial parts like the West Midlands where they don't produce for the international market but for the home market where they don't care troubles about the corn laws, it seems to me. What they want to do is to go off the gold standard and reflate the economy. So, so it's not all manufacturers, but there is a certain manufacturing lobby 
So we're getting the manufacturing lobby and an intellectual lobby for free trade and a reform lobby beginning to coalesce. Um, What, as it were, Lawrence... Happens next. Well, uh, I suppose what happens next is the foundations of the Anti Corn Law League. Um, now, it's not the first time that there have been organised protests against the Corn Laws, as 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 is clear from your introduction. But um, in Manchester, uh, in late 1838, a, a small association was formed, the Manchester Anti Corn Law Association. That took off very rapidly, and within six months you have an anti-corn law league founded. Uh, At its heart are the manufacturing interest of Lancashire, the cotton industry, which requires, if you like, reciprocal markets, which makes exactly that argument that if we don't take the raw materials from Europe, they won't buy our finished goods. Um, And in that way, as it were, we expand the market, we expand employment, there is uh, higher wages and better opportunities for the workers of Lancashire. And the League is enormously successful. It's probably the most successful pressure group of the 19th century. It uh, propagandises enormously successfully um, through the nation. It sends out lecturers, it publishes journals. The Economist, which we still read today, is founded at this time to propagandise for free trade. Who are, the mo- who are the most prominent members? And, uh... Well, the, 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 the core of the League are Manchester and Lancashire manufacturers, and the two most famous are a kind of duo, Richard Cobden and John Bright, both of them uh, involved in the cotton industry. Uh, Cobden is a calico printer. He prints cotton cloth. Um, and the two of them, uh, working together, close friends, are both elected to Parliament in the early 1840s. So can we just take a little digression to make... make because that was very important. The Reform Bill did extend the franchise a bit. It was a breakthrough a bit, and the breakthrough seems to have favoured the, the industrial north for the first time. Yes, well, right that's right. I mean, what the Great Reform Act did was not only expand the franchise, more or less doubling it to about 800,000 men having the vote in England, but it also, and this is the more crucial point, redistributed seats. So before the Great Reform Act, Manchester, the great centre of industrialisation, had no MPs at all. After the Great Reform Act, it is represented, and seats are moved from the agricultural south and west of England to the industrialising north, and the geography of politics is now, in a sense, more in line with the geography of economics, you might say. So the League... And can we, Cheryl, can we uh, develop what Lawrence started about the anti Corn Law League's very effective campaign. Uh, it is said to be, in the notes of one of you, more effective than a campaign against slavery, which was, uh, which, which is quite a quite a claim. Well, the Anti Corn Law League, as Lawrence says, is I, I think the first modern pressure group, um, and its leaders were absolutely astute in their ability to exploit both the use of the ideas, as as Lawrence has outlined, in their national propaganda campaign. So both in terms of the circulation of the anti-corn law circular, um, thousands of speeches given by its members throughout the country. But the second feature, which is is, um, particularly relevant to the fear that was then experienced on the part of um, both um, MPs and peers in, in, the 19, in the 1840s was their electoral registration campaign. So, and this brings us up a little bit to af- after the period of 1841 when the Peel government comes in. 
So what was anticipated was that there would be a general election of 1848, which of course didn't happen, but that was the anticipation. The Corn Law League then sought to target its effort in its electoral registration toward 1848, or the anticipated election of, of 1848, by essentially swamping Parliament, the House of Commons, with uh, supporters for free trade. And they sought to do so in two ways. One was to uh, try to delete as many of the protectionist electors from the electoral uh, registers and so on the annual revisions of the uh, the registers, they sought to register as many objections as as possible to delete the uh, the protectionists. But at the same time, and this was very clever, um, they created thousands of free trade electors, um, and they sought to do so by a, it might be called a loophole, but it's actually a feature that goes back to 1430, but it was preserved in the 1832. Um, uh, Reform Act, and that is a feature called the 40-shilling county qualification. And what this did was allowed a free trade elector to be created uh, for 40 shillings in the counties. Now, this became relevant in 1832 because the county seats increased from 29% to 38% of the total seats in Parliament. So, it then weighted things a little bit more in favor of the county seats. And the idea was, of course, then to shift the balance in the House toward free trade. And there's speculation as to whether that may or may not have been ultimately achieved. But it was a credible threat. Lloyd Hilton, can we <coughs> talk about the central questions of the debate? Is it crass to think of it? Well, one of the underlying things was what we might call, I don't know whether you'll maybe please refine the term, a class conflict going on here, industry versus the land, the artist's hands versus the uh, ancestral privilege, and so on and so forth. Can you give us some idea of the ideology? Well, clearly there were uh, sectoral divisions, and these had developed in the late 20s and early 30s. There was indeed a rhetoric of land versus industry that was quite powerful, reflected in some of the Reform Act debates. One of the very interesting points about Cobden's message, and it was very, very successful, was to say, look, the thing about free trade, it's a very optimistic view. Um, It will, will grow the economy. Um, we'll, we'll pull out of the old Malthusian finite sum economy um, and we will create growth through free trade and all classes will benefit. Um, some will benefit more quickly than others but all will benefit in the long term and indeed all countries will benefit because it, it, there will be world economic growth through what we would call globalisation and the wealth will trickle down to the poor but also to the p- poorer nations. So it's a very optimistic and really uh, class harmonising um, theory and it takes on. It's a sort of optimistic theory that people um, are, 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 you know, really are appealed by. Now, um, it's nothing to do with what Peel thought. If I could go back to Peel for a minute. If Peel... If, the, Tor- Peel, if yeah. the Tories had not fallen in 1830, they were expected to have repealed the Corn Laws by, by 1836. Had they done so, they, were, they would have done so before the, the League got going. Indeed, the League got going because of the failure to do anything about the Corn Laws. 
if they had repealed the Corners by 1836, you would have seen the, the Pelian ethos, if I could call it that, of free trade for what it was, uh, which was not at all uh, optimistic and growth-oriented, because Peel, an older man, is a thoroughgoing Malthusian, and he can't conceive of sustained economic growth. You've got, in his mind, you've got to understand that uh, free trade is all part of what we might call free market economics. It's about minimal government, harsh welfare, attack the shirkers, uh, help the workers, um, the new poor law, which is very much behind, you know, you will keep the state will keep you alive, but only if you submit to the most degrading and horrid conditions and so forth. It's a very sort of mi minimal welfare, minimal taxation state. And what he says is the great thing about free trade is not that it will create growth. He's, even in 1846, he's saying that people of the corn laws won't, won't stop distress. It always comes around. Uh, every season of excitement is followed by depression, but... In future, thanks to the repeal of the corn laws and free trade and getting nearer to the economy of nature, in future, when distress comes, you will have the consolation of reflecting that that distress has not been caused by laws of man regulating the, uh, in the hour of scarcity of the supply of food. The distress is the dispensation of providence. God deals with sinful mankind by uh, testing them and tempting them in the market and if people suffer, or if our nations suffer, then this is a dispensation of providence sent for some just and inscrutable purpose. So he took the state out of the area of blame. Yes. Mm. Which was quite very clever, yeah. one of the many mm. clever things he did. Um, Lawrence Goldman, we have I've got the Whigs, as, mm. as uh, Boyd Hilton alluded to, the Tories mm. fell, yeah, didn't fall. The, the parties are embryonic and mm. shifting, there are a lot of wiggle under but it, it's the useful tag. The Whigs got the reform bill through, mm. uh, a lot of the mm. Tories were, and so we have, we now have the two parties sizing each other up, don't we, in the oh. 1830s. And this, but apart from that, we've got, as, as Cheryl said, an extremely effective uh, league. Anti-lost and uh, anti-league league sprang up, didn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, an anti-league does spring up um, later on in about 1844, but it's a bit of an apology for an extra parliamentary group, really. Um, I mean, uh, uh, as Cheryl actually said at the beginning, the problem for these landholders is they don't really believe in extra parliamentary agitation. They hate the idea of taking politics out of doors, taking it to the people. They are hostile to the popular politics of this era, precisely because it. It, it empowers people in the streets, the crowd, the mob, as they see it. And so, in a sense, they're in a difficult position. Trying to make uh, the anti-free trade cause popular runs against their grain, to, as it were, coin a pun. But the point that I would make as well is that they're not well organised. Um, they try to draw together these agricultural protection societies which have sprung up uh, in a central organisation, uh, which is what's called the Anti-League, and the people who run it are, are just not the kinds of people for running a big public campaign. If you compare Cobden and Bright to uh, the Duke of Richmond, who is the sort of titular figurehead, a man of the turf of broad acres in Sussex, much happier at Goodwood, I think, than in the mills of Lancashire or even in Parliament. If you compare him with uh, Cobden Bright, or indeed his lieutenant, uh, the second Duke of Buckingham and Chandos, who loses the great country house of Stowe uh, and becomes heavily indebted, a wastrel and uh, a, a, a libertine. Uh, these are not the kinds of people to run public campaigns. In many ways, they simply enforce the caricature of a landed aristocracy, which is very much out of touch. 
So, Cheryl, how how did they... <laughs> painted a pretty bleak picture. <laughs> uh, not much for Cheryl to pick up, but nevertheless, there was a campaign. What, what strength did the resistance have? They can be strong and mean competent at the same time, I presume. Not much. I'll just give you a figure. Um, so, in comparison, as Lawrence noted, they really only got going in, in the mid-1840s. So... To give you concrete figures, the Anti-Corn Law League grew from a, a, an annual fund of £5,000 in 1939. By 1845, it had an annual fund of a quarter million. In those terms? Yeah, 250000 Meanwhile, that same year, 1845, the Anti-League, based in Essex, had an annual fund of £2,000. So their organizational efforts were pretty poor. Okay, now we have to come on, Boyd Hilton, to a man who is fascinating. He's just a thread through all of this, uh, Robert Peel. The distinction, one of the distinctions I think he has is that he, he came from an industrial... His father had made himself rich twice and then massively rich the second time. We're told one of the richest men in the country through industry. He sent his boy to Eton and Christchurch and straight into, <coughs> straight into Parliament. But he had that kind of background somewhere or other, even though he was a great grandee. And he... He was a Tory, and then he and he and he was. He seems to me, you, he steered the thing. He was there. In, in he was where it mattered to be in the thirties and forties, and he was trying to find a way to repeal this and not and keep the Tory body intact. Yes, I think that is right. Uh, he's the terrible bind, uh, as I've already said. He is convinced that for reasons of national security, we can't delay repeal of the Corn Laws too long. It's got to happen fairly soon, unless population suddenly stops growing, but well, that's not going to happen. But the trouble is, he's got a Tory party that is um, very heavily protectionist. We, we talked earlier about the 1832 Reform Act. It also doubled the number of English county seats. So, in fact, there's still a very strong protectionist lobby within Parliament. And when the Anti-Corn League gets going with its huge propaganda against agriculture, there is a a sudden sort of whoosh of support for protection in the counties at the very end of the 30s. And the great landslide victory for Peel in 1841 when the Conservatives come back is based on the counties and the small towns and it's based on protection. So here's this man who wants to repeal the Corn Laws but has got a party that is committed to protection very largely and he's also the man, the member, who, who has already once betrayed that party when he went for Catholic emancipation in uh, 1829. And he's, he only just been it, yeah. he's, uh, he's only just been forgiven. So what does he do? Um, well, immediately taking office, he embarks on a downward step of the Corn Law, and he presents it to his... Um, to his and we know that this is just the first of a two or three steps to repeal in his mind. But what he said to the party is, look, let us do a downward step and then we'll be able to hold protection at that point. You can, so that he's telling them, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still a protectionist, but just take this downward step, and they take it. And I think he probably intended, like, this is guesswork, to do another downward step in 45. And then when it came to the election that Cheryl was uh, talking about that might have been held in 48, he could have said to his supporters, look, we've had two downward steps, it, it hasn't damaged the farmers because there's lots of demand. If I win the next election on the back of a successful government, I'm going to have to do real repeal. And that would have been open and above board and he wouldn't have been accused of betrayal. But at some point, he suddenly decides, down about 1844, that he's got to do the repeal of the Cornwalls before the next election. 
Sherrill has given us one very important reason why he feels he might lose the election, because the, the League is creating votes in the counties. It may be a more general feeling that with Chartism, the working-class protest movement, and um, hunger, the hungry forces after all, it would be dangerous to fight the next election on the food of the people. But anyway, he suddenly has to do it before the next election. That means he's going to face charges of having betrayed the party again, of having cheated in 41, pretending to be a protectionist when he was so he has to find an excuse. And uh, the main excuse that he finds, and I think we'd all agree this was a red herring, is the Irish potato famine, in, which starts in um, late '45. He knows perfectly well, this is clear from his letters, that repeating the Corn Laws isn't going to get any food into uh, Irish mouths. And he even says at one point that if there's one part of the United Kingdom I'm afraid will suffer from Corn Law repeal, it is Ireland. But he can say in a very general way to his uh, backbenchers, his, his country gentlemen, how can you worry about your rent rolls when over in Ireland there are people going hungry and, of course, later to starve and so forth. So it's a red herring, but it provides him with an excuse to do... Uh, what he intended to do anyway. Can we just c continue with this, Lawrence Golden? Because it is, he does bring everything together. He's, he's trying to do something almost impossible. And, and also, what, 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 what Boy Hilton has raised is they are the inside parties that is conflict. Mm, it isn't yes. just Whigs versus Tories. Yes. The Tories are at each other. So they mm. don't like Peel, really. They want hunting, shooting, and fishing. Mm. And he despises them. Mm. He thinks they're mm. sort of sick, really. Yeah. And yeah. He, he doesn't like that sort of mm. thing. But he's richer than any of them, cleverer than any of them, more powerful <laughs> than any of them. And they're stuck with him. Um, and uh, and there's a feeling, as again, I touch on, of a revolution in the air. Mm. It, this is the 1840s. Mm. This mm. is all over mm. Europe. With as it turned mm. out, with one of the few countries that escaped mm. it. So this Peel is seems to be conscious of all these forces yes. and storms, doesn't uh, he? Absolutely. I mean, the first point that one would make is that he is very conscious of revolution. If you look at his his biography, there's always a fear that the mob will get into the streets, into his estates, and sweep it all away. These people, particularly Peel's generation, live in the shadow of the French Revolution. So whenever... And, and so hunger means... Revolution, uh, indeed, in and 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 also protest is potentially very dangerous to the state. So that over Catholic emancipation, allowing Catholics to sit in Parliament, when there's the threat of rebellion in Ireland, he gives way. Over the Reform Act in 1832, when the crowd in May of 1832 go into the streets, Peel decides not to join an anti-reform administration, a government, and uh, the Whigs are allowed to, finally to pass the Great Reform Act. And what the Tories have against him is that again in 1845-46, he seems to be afraid of mass action of some sort, and he's giving in. And the protectionists are saying... No, hold firm, hold fast, you don't have to do this. And there is a sense in which Peel, Peel is willing it. Uh, he, his government resigns, he resigns in late 1845, hoping that the Whigs will come in and that they will repeal the Corn Laws. Uh, the Whigs have difficulty forming an administration, and in any case, they'd rather see the Tories divide over this question. And then the real sticking point is that in January of 1846, Peel decides to come back unnecessarily, in the view of many in his party, to form an administration with the intention of actually repealing these laws. So we've got to the number bit here, Cheryl. They were repealed in 1846. Can you give us uh, more information about what right. actually happened? So January of 1846, Peel sets the tone in a three-hour 
um, reading of the uh, the legislation, and he gives. A, 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 this is in Parliament. This is in Parliament, yeah. and he gives um, a battery of rationale f- rationales for for why the uh, the government should move for for repeal, um, appealing to a number of different constituencies. So as we mentioned, the difficulty here is that he needs to gain at least a good portion of his own party and get them on board. Because between um, 1843, 1845, the liberal support for free trade had gone from about 71% to 89%, but in about the same time period, only four conservative MPs had voted for um, for repeal. So the key was to, to get part of his party on board. Now that meant there was essentially... Um, a fraction, and, and here is we're talking about the split in the Conservative par- be, Party between what were do- dubbed the Peelites and the non-Peelite Conservatives, the Peelites, of course, being the ones who followed Peel, and that constituted about a third of the Conservatives. So Peel introduces the legislation in January, um, and ultimately about a third of the Conservatives are swayed in favour. So the question is why? Why were they then... You know why did they agree to this abrupt reversal from the the steadfast adherence to protection for agriculture? Well, part of the reason requires an analysis and look at who those constituencies were and the changes in the constituencies that the Peelites represented. And there had been a transformation in terms of the interests based in the Peelite districts. They had become a bit more urbanized, a bit more industrialized. So there was a little bit of a tension that had been ongoing in the early 1840s within those constituencies already among the Peelites. Um, So by them then um, shifting their stance toward uh, toward repeal, it at least from an electoral uh, position made sense. But the argument that appealed to them in terms of a cover, a fig leaf for their um, to say, well, we really are true conservatives, is that part of the rationale that Peel gave was to redefine conservatism as an ideology. So rather than protection being one of the cornerstones of conservatism um, as an ideology, he argued that in order to maintain the landowning um, aristocratic control of parliament, a concession, a timely concession is required, and that timely concession is an economic one to the middle classes to opt for repeal. Did he realise, Boyd Hilton, or did he take on board that he was doing something that would destroy his political career? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think he thought he might get away with it by moral appeals and appeals to the national interest. Because inside his own party, Disraeli emerged hammering him in Parliament, didn't he? I I think he hoped to get away with it, but I think he secretly rather liked the martyrdom that came with not getting away from it and so forth. And there's a lot of religious, um, you know, phraseology. Um, and he, as you say, he despises these backbenchers too. So to be crucified by them is, in a way, a mark of uh, sainthood. And incidentally, just having mentioned that, 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 that an anti-corn rolling member, and uh, this is the sort of hype that is uh, uh, swirling around at this time, describes the repeal of the corn rolls after it has happened as the most altruistic act in history since the crucifixion. Right, Lawrence Goldman, what effect did that repeal have on the economy? What happened afterwards? Well, it's an interesting question because um, it's actually in some ways rather difficult to say. Uh, The... uh, 
two decades and more after 1846, the 50s and 60s, are periods of very good harvests, plentiful supply of corn grown at home. Uh, you would have some difficulty proving, as it were, that repeal uh, increased nutritional standards in this country by, as it were, uh, foreign corn coming in, because it looks as if domestic demand picks up. The golden most. age of English agriculture. Absolutely. Yeah. But in the longer term, of course, it does have an effect. Go back to the 1830s and a minuscule amount of our, of our food is coming in from abroad. Uh, then, of course, if you look half a century on to the 1870s, 1880s, and more than half of our food is coming from abroad, um, the world is, in fact, in the late 19th century, awash with cheap food with cheap grain um, and uh, a lot of it is coming to this country and the price the, the price of food is in real terms going down. It's a good age to be an urban worker uh, because food is cheaper but it would be difficult I think to say that it destroys British agriculture it doesn't in fact the farmers do quite well and when problems emerge in the late 19th century they're ubiquitous through oversupply across the whole globe Sorry uh, Charles can you just say he killed off the Tory parties the Conservative parties chances of being in power for quite a while didn't he? Well he did and and whether that was intentional or, or not, I, you know, is, is is another question. But in terms of thinking about the long-term consequences of repeal, and just picking up on, on Lawrence's point, is I think it embedded the, the subsequent prosperity, the national prosperity in the subsequent decades, I think was really associated with free trade in the minds of the British electorate and in key institutions like the Board of Trade. And so when you had subsequent challenges to the idea of free trade, so the fair trade movement in the 1870s and the 1880s, or ultimately, um, and more seriously, in the tariff reform movement leading up to the election of 1906, both were um, halted because, in part, there was a, a steadfast belief that British pros prosperity was linked, was inherently linked to free trade. And I think that's one of the the you know the, the the legacy part of the legacy of the repeal and also hammered home by another great figure of the 19th century Gladstone who came in in 1853 on free trade minimal state mm. low taxes and, and Gladstone and has learned his politics at Peel's feet I mean he was there in Peel's government in the early 1840s and he learns that as it were free trade provides not only a, a good economic policy but a kind of philosophy for the way in which you might run the state and the government in the future the, the great irony is that Cobden had presented free trade as creating peace between the nations we would trade with each other rather than make war. In fact, what happens, our determination to take cheap food from abroad, America mainly, means by the end of the 19th century that we are dependent on foreign food. We've got to go. I'm really sorry. We've got to go. Thank you very much, Boyd Hilton, Lawrence Goldman, Cheryl, Sean Hart Bailey. Next week we'll be talking about the Conference of Berlin in 1884.